This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. This is Phil and Steve here from Toronto and Windsor-ish. Yes. Yes. Today, Steve is leading the charge here. So, Steve, lead the charge. What are we doing? Leading from behind. (laughs) It always sounds vaguely sexual. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, today we're talking about how to heal your relationship with food because our concept is intuitive eating. Mm. And this is a a very, very interesting concept, (laughs) a little bias here, but uh, as a former personal trainer and someone who's who's written about fitness in terms of a societal level, I find this topic very interesting, but you find it interesting as well because of more uh, personal experiences in this area. I mean, I think everyone finds it interesting because it's about how to have a better relationship with food because everyone has weird relationships with food, like forbidden foods or things they should be eating. And a lot of judgments are both internal and external coming about this. So I think this should be interesting for most people because I guess has to challenge a lot of assumptions that mainstream thinking tends to push on us. Yes. And that's what we're going to challenge today is the mainstream thinking, uh, which, which is called diet culture, which we're going to be referring to and how it's actually quite toxic and it gets the exact opposite of what it's preaching. Shocking. The idea is restrict your foods for weight loss purposes and that does the exact opposite of what you'd expect. It actually, uh, well, not what you'd expect. It's very common that yo-yo dieting is widely known that you stay, stay on a diet for a little bit. Well, I think what you're hedging around here is the emphasis on just pure, let's say, Newtonian kind of physics, biology, where it's like energy in must be less than energy out. That's the solution. There we go. Problem solved. Why are you still fat? What the hell? What's the issue? Yeah. So it's like how economics approached people before, thinking that all people were purely 100% rational actors. And for some reason, they, I guess, just thought they were better than psychology for the longest time, that it took them forever to get to the behavioral economics model that they're currently kind of working with, which is showing that like people don't follow these things just because our model says they will, or this model says it's going to work, doesn't mean it works like that in practice. As I say, in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're not. Yes. So as a younger personal trainer, I think I started this when I was around 19 and I really took it from a scientific perspective of, oh, we're all rational and this is the best plan. You do the math on the basal metabolic rate, you calculate the calorie consumption and you factor in exercise and foods eaten and various types of calories from various types of nutrients. And then you have the formula for weight loss and you have it. And I felt like it was like this magic thing that you possessed and you just needed to tell people what it is and give them the solution. And then there you go. You get a transformation. 
But in practice, it doesn't work that way. This was always really annoying to me because everyone thinks that it's anybody who's never had to lose weight thinks it's super easy because they don't have to do anything. It's kind of like a rich person who's always been rich, always been very affluent, always had lots of opportunities because of the inherited wealth and the connections their parents have thinking, why don't these poor people just make money? What's wrong with them? I did it. It's easy. But like, clearly they're not facing the same struggles and they don't know what they're talking about, but they think they, they do. And so I've never faced the struggle. And so being in the personal training field, having never experienced that struggle, I thought, well, it's, it's, it's pretty rational. You just got to do this thing. It must be a knowledge problem. Here's the knowledge. Do this, do this plan. I had a friend who was a historian and she believed that if only she could sit down the leaders of Israel and Palestine, this was like way before this current situation is going on. This was like a decade ago where she said if she could sit them down and explain the history to both of them, then that would solve everything. <laughs> like you don't understand psychology at all, apparently, because that's not going to make any a lick of difference, frankly. <laughs> Yes. And the same with uh, mental health and addiction. People will approach it as if it's a knowledge problem. Like, oh, they just need to know how harmful the substance is and then they won't do it. Yeah. Don't you know you're killing yourself? <laughs> don't you know that cigarettes cause cancer? Uh, no. And so it doesn't work that way. And with the approach to eating, it goes under the radar because diet culture is everywhere. You have ads, you're bombarded by it like crazy. So people don't often recognize how toxic and counterproductive it actually is. Yeah. So we're looking at intuitive eating and it's a, actually a book and it's an approach by uh, Elise Reich and Evelyn Tribol, I believe. They're both nutritionists and they've written a book and they're the original founders of this concept of intuitive eating, which we will link. And so this is the book we're basing it on. Yeah, that is the book. You're right. Sorry, I just cut you off. But you said something just before introducing the book about how everyone's talking about we should diet and such. But I think it, one very obvious piece of evidence that this culture does not like this approach is that the, the health at every size, have you ever heard of that? H-A-E-S. Yes. It's a movement that's been trying to get people to accept that you can be healthy at larger sizes. Because some people, frankly, I mean, there are some people that if you just see their head, you know they're going to be a more burly body because it would seem weird to be like a bobblehead if they did lose all that weight. Plus, like they have a larger frame. And through genetics, they're just not going to be able to get away from that. And so for some reason, that movement has been so deeply demonized and attacked and people try to make straw men of it saying that like if you're morbidly obese that's not healthy that's not what they're arguing no they're arguing that by by following this current approach it's the most defensible argument i've heard of it was from that book that we're talking about today was that by listening to what your body actually wants you will end up where your body naturally will be most healthy if you're able to listen to it but like let's get into it i'm just kind of yeah. jumping on that Yes. Yeah. The idea is listening to your body first and foremost and diet culture, fitness industry is really the exact opposite of that. It's more like come to us for the knowledge. Don't listen to your body. Actually, it's almost like reject your body, very actively rejecting it. Don't trust it. Trust me. Here's the plan. Follow this. Don't think about it. Just follow it. Yeah. Don't listen to what your body tells you. These are the real keys. Think about it. It's from the societies that are most unhealthy that are constantly doing this. Yeah, so Western society, we're largely talking about here, but Western culture more generally and how it's... Maybe even just North America, frankly. But Western culture doesn't have to be in Western society. You can see it growing in China. Western culture is, is quite prevalent from at least my understanding. Yeah, and uh, a lot of all the extra sugar and shit pumped over there. There's a, a list of things that I laid out in this article. If you wanted to check out the summary of that book, you can find it uh, on my website, steverosephd.com. It will also be linked. 
yeah, wrote a whole article just summarizing the book. If you don't want to go for the full book. Oh, side note that we didn't drop there. And I should probably add this to the intro. Every reference we make in the podcast will be in the show notes. We've got comprehensively linked show notes where I listen to everything we say. And even an offhand comment about somebody, I will often link. So if you don't know who it is, or don't know what we're talking about or want to explore further, it's all there. Just to be clear. <laughs> I love how you forcefully said that. Because people have been like, I don't know who that is. I, well, I'm probably going to actually remove that specific excerpt and put it with the other thing we put at the beginning. So we'll probably hear that twice. So if you hear that twice, it'll sound so like vaguely angry and annoyed. Yeah. Maybe excited. <laughs> sure. Uh, Cause yeah, people throw like, I don't know who these people are. And I'm like, well, I mean, we did talk about them in other podcasts, but we have to expect that people are not going to listen to these all in order. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. but I do comprehensively link everything. So if you want to learn more, it's, it's all there. All right. Very good. So how do you know if you have an unhealthy relationship with food? And I came up with a list of things and maybe we can go through each of them. Hit me. First one is you classify certain foods as good or bad. Mm. That's pretty common. Who doesn't do that? I mean, everyone does that. I don't think it's a matter of whether or not you do that. It's how, with what severity do you do that? Yeah. And how much shame you have about it. Yeah. How much are you thinking about it? How much does it uh, plague your mind all day? I have to resist the sinful, sinful thing. You know, we use language like that. But I think the healthier form though, like the one is a moralizing form, which is unhealthy. Yeah. But I think the healthier form is that like, will this make me feel good or will I regret eating this? Like, it's not about whether it's good or bad, but like, do I feel better or worse after consuming this? Because if I feel worse, then why the hell is it worth the cost of whatever enjoyment you had from consuming it? Exactly. Yeah. The good or bad classification is helpful if it's based on your own body's reaction. You're listening to it, but it's unhelpful if it's coming from like a top down personal trainer says no type of attitude. So why is it unhelpful to list certain things as bad and morally bad and morally wrong and you can't do it and it's shameful because the idea that what you resist persists. I don't know if you're familiar. Carl Jung. Carl Jung, yeah. Jung, Jungian psychology. Uh, so if you resist something, it gives it more allure, more power. It really amplifies that attraction to the thing that you're resisting. This is huge in addiction counseling. It's why you don't start with, oh, don't do that bad alcohol. Don't even think about it, you know, and it just kind of makes it into this like fantasy thing. And, and we talked about this in our previous episode of uh, leaning in and using uh, kind of a verbal judo approach to motivation rather than just trying to tug of war approach. Tug of war, you get resistance back. Verbal judo, you use the momentum and and you really get some change. That's quite easy to do. I'm guessing my relationship with food because I'm attempting to follow what this book is saying. And I find that it's it's frustrating, but I have to tell myself that like social skills or other things I've worked on, you have to get better before you can get worse. Because as soon as I switched, I gained some weight and like that's been difficult to not want to immediately start taking action to fix but mm -hmm. I find that like slowly but surely I'm starting to make better choices and I don't really want the junk as much. I can have as much as I want, but you're just like, I feel bad after I have too much of that. So likewise, do you find that with other addictions they have in their mind? Like I could have that at any time it's available. However, I know that the, the outcomes that come from it are things that I don't want. Is that where they kind of end up? That's exactly the place you want to have someone land and on their terms. You can't tell them that. Yeah. You can't just tell them. I mean, you can try. Oh, that stuff's bad and you're going to not want it. 
but you have to actually rely on their own experience of it. And therefore, usually a first session is kind of getting a, a, an idea of what's going on. And then the homework before the second session would be to bring your attention to these moments in your intuition. Is this thing actually rewarding in reality? Uh, or is it just a, an outdated uh, reward circuitry that you keep operating on based on habit that's actually quite punishing. And then you, you meet up in the second session and you ask, how was that? And then they kind of start to lose that actual interest in the thing. So it's really bringing intuition into the process. What are we on now? Number two or three? Number two, the next one is you are overly preoccupied with food. This is you become the servant of food rather than food serving your body. Uh, hold on. A better phrase. You're living to eat, not eating to live. Ooh, I love it. Very nice. There's actually a disorder that's classified in this category. Orthorexia? Orthorexia, yeah. Hmm. It's actually like an addiction to dieting. You can summarize it as. Um, so it's overly preoccupied with eating healthy foods and or exercising to reset any guilt. So the next one, you restrict or binge on food. Uh, we already talked about this. What you resist persists. This is the yo-yo dieting. Yeah, but it's also like the forbidden stuff. Because like people who think that they're going to just white knuckle it and be like, I'm just going to strength of will forever. I'm going to go to this buffet with my friends and I'm not going to eat the tempting things. But the thing is, you can hold out and do that for a certain amount of time. But because you know you're restricting it, you keep building up this desire over time. And eventually you probably are going to end up having way too much periodically that would be more than you would if you just allowed yourself to have a little bit once in a while. Yes. It's letting off a little bit of the steam here and there rather than it just bottling up and exploding. Yes, exactly. That's kind of the logic here. The next one you eat based on rules rather than internal cues. We've kind of touched on that as well, but a lot of people are very, uh, uh, separated from their body. There's a common phrase people say, it's like you're always living in your head. And we often do this. We become very rational in modern society and we've become very out of touch with our body. A lot of people don't even really regularly check in on what's going on there. What am I feeling? What, what does my body need? What does hunger feel like? This reminds me of emotional granularity. It was talked about in this book called How Emotions Are Made. And it was saying how People who have very low emotional granularity, which is to say they don't have a very fine point on any emotion. They just have, say, for the least granular would be they have good and bad emotions. I feel good. I feel bad. But they don't have even like single islands of like anger, happy. But then people with higher emotional granularity would be like we were talking about granularity. When we we're talking about like grains, like there's a bunch of grains of sand. Yeah. Whereas if it's not granular, yeah. it's like a big whole object, a big blunt thing. And so people who have higher granularity have like different shades of happiness or different shades of anxiety or whatever. They, they can interpret it more clearly. So people who have really low granularity, they don't understand their emotions, tend to just interpret, say, bad emotions as maybe sometimes they don't even recognize that they're having a bad emotion. All they recognize is they have like a stomach ache or a headache or some sort of physical manifestation of these things. And I think that's similar to this. Like you're saying, they don't listen to their hunger. They just say, oh, I should eat because it's this time. Exactly. Yeah. And so you become very like a connoisseur of your body's uh, needs and sensations, like you can become a connoisseur of various emotions. And I would be even more careful there and not say good or bad emotions, but I would I would say uh, uncomfortable or pleasant. Uh, and it takes away kind of the morality of it. And so all emotions are okay. They're all just information. Or pleasant or painful, perhaps. Yeah, pleasant or painful. And so they're emotions as information. Yeah, they're always a feedback. 
Yeah. In the same way, hunger pains are not bad. It's like, oh, it's bad. It's hunger pains. Unenjoyable. It's just a unpleasant thing. It's information. It's like the, the gift of fear, right? Or anxiety. These are things that are built in to get you to do something. Like anxiety is built in to get you to take action to help solve whatever problem you're anxious about. Yeah. Until, unless it becomes rumination and overthinking and the rest of it. So these things yeah. can go haywire. But the more granularity and specificity you have, the more you can recognize what's actually going on right now. And in terms of your, your bodily sensations, is this hunger or do I just need something to drink or do I need to like move around more? Like what's actually happening in your, in your body right now? Yeah. I think listening to that more would actually lead to less problems with the overall health. They've actually, I think, state that explicitly in the book, because if you're actually listening to these things, you're probably giving yourself what you need instead of while well, feeling guilt and shame and all these other things. Plus you're not probably binging on random bad foods or unhealthy rather foods perhaps. And it will likely help you decide to preempt problems that would maybe come about from either the psychological stress from not living up to what you want or from the nutritional imbalances, perhaps from not listening to what your body wants. Cause instead you end up like a petulant child being like, I can't have that. You're not allowed. And then eventually like, well, I'm going to have it anyway. <laughs> the diet rebel. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, this, what you said relates to the next point. You feel guilty when enjoying food and how healthy is that to be constantly subjecting yourself to feelings of guilt and or shame really well it's the same thing as a what we talked about well what i brought up from the book the big leap or last podcast because things are going well they think oh no this isn't right i shouldn't be feeling good now i'm too flawed to feel good so then they create problems self-sabotaging yeah to kind of reset to where you believe you should be internally and so this is the same idea with food it's like i don't deserve to enjoy this dessert right now I can't do that. I'm not worthy of this. I yeah. I need to discipline my body. I don't have a six pack yet. I can't eat chocolate. Yeah. I'll enjoy chocolate then. Do you remember when we would tell, or at least this would be more you, but like, I guess even me when I was younger, a bit more, I would tell people I work out and they'd say, you work out. You don't need to work out. You look great. <laughs> it's like, how do you think? I mean, part of my looking great, I guess, by their standard would be from the exercise. They're trying to get me to nod to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're done you're done take the take it out of the oven it's done yeah all can complete clap it off yes and, and so this idea of not enjoying your food goes psychologically deeper than just the detriments of constantly experiencing shame it actually makes you feel not satisfied and now you're in a state of well i need more because i'm not actually satisfied and so it puts you in this constant state of dissatisfaction. And then that scarcity fuels constantly needing to focus on it now because I feel deprived. It plays a psychological trick on you that leads again to the binging cycle of, of just going all in. Yeah. They were talking about in the book, how like say somebody really wants ice cream, but instead of ice cream, they have this like frozen banana pureed thing. That's kind of like ice yeah, cream. Yeah. And then they end up having like a dozen bananas when they would have just had been satisfied with half a cup of ice cream, like real ice cream. Yeah. So in having the healthy alternative, you're actually often having more of it because you're just not satisfied with the actual flavor. It's partially that, but it's also, I think just the, this mental thing that happens because in research, they showed that having the same crackers where one was listed as fat free and the other one was just listed as like normal cracker. The people with the the quote unquote healthier option, they're the exact same. 
they actually ate significantly more because they thought it was a health food. And so they gave themselves permission. Yeah. So it's not actually because it's made of bananas makes it unsatisfying inherently. It's exactly that uh, psychological label of this thing equals not as satisfying. I'm only allowed to have this unsatisfying thing and you're putting off your satisfaction and then it just kind of goes and you know what, forget it. I'm going to have the real thing. And now you've just had both. Whereas if you just started with the real thing and had a few bites and then thought, okay, that was good. We would have avoided this whole psychological process and domino effect here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Next one. That's a joke that nobody's nobody's picking up on except for us. That <laughs> Steve, I called him out for. We were both confused about something, and he started saying exactly once I came up with the answer, even as though he had come up with it. <laughs> this is not a case of me doing that, though. I'm saying, yeah, you're exactly right. We both agree on this. <laughs> okay, just wondering. And so the next one, you eat for the purpose of changing your body. Mm. Well, that's tricky though, man. That's a tricky one though. You see, like even you have done that for like gaining muscle, right? Exactly. No, no, but that that's right. That's fine in that context. So you are able to eat for the purpose of changing your body. If you're heavily steeped in diet culture, it becomes more of obsession though. Uh, it becomes, I need to be deprived of these foods because my body is not okay the way it is. And, and so this right. results in an obsessional focus. I am not enough. I must have penitence through restricting these things. Now, if you're early in the intuitive eating stuff, I'd probably hold off on the focus on changing your body too much because there's a lot of baggage from diet culture. So kind of stepping back from that temporarily, as you said, even if it results in your body going in a direction you you didn't necessarily want, having the patience to reset your mind around food and and really heal that relationship before re-engaging in these types of focuses. Right. There's a quote from Roy Baumeister, famous but somewhat shamed psychologist because a lot of his research had problems with the replication crisis. Uh, He has a book called Willpower, but a quote he has from that I found very useful for this topic was people think that it takes a lot of willpower to follow a diet and to get in shape. But when you look in the mirror and you're disappointed with what you see, it takes enormous amounts of willpower not to diet. Dieting is actually the easier option, despite what people think, because like me putting up with this right now, it takes a lot of willpower to not like start centering and policing myself and forcing myself to conform to what society seems to think I should do. It takes a lot of will to fight against those intuitions that have been so long ingrained. People understand what dieting is. If you say you can't have this thing as you're on a diet, everyone's like, oh, okay, of course he's on a diet. Makes sense. But if you say I'm intuitively eating, people are like, what's that? And it, it makes it more difficult because there's no rigid rules around it. You have to literally tune in all the time and constantly check in where you, you haven't developed those patterns before. And also the protestations against it are stuff like, oh, if I did that, I'd just be eating chocolate all day or I'd be I'd be a size of a house and blah, blah, blah. And no, you wouldn't because at first, yeah, because you were constantly in control and stopping yourself from doing these things. And then you get complete freedom. Yeah, you're going to go crazy for a bit. But then eventually you're going to realize, wow, I'm depressed and feel like shit. So like I should probably stop doing this. And you'll eventually zero in as long as you keep going. However, this definitely will not work if you keep saying, well, I'm going to go back on a diet one day because then it's temporary and you'll have a phenomenon they call the, uh, the last supper diet mm-hmm. or last supper phenomenon where just before you're going to restrict, you're going to have a huge amount of that thing. Cause you're never having it again. That doesn't last. It could be even like a weekly occurrence where like every Sunday 
you're going to restart on a Monday. So every Sunday you binge into things that you're never going to have again, but then it happens week after week. This brings me to the point I wanted to talk about regarding where does this unhealthy relationship with food come from in terms of the broader cultural forces that are really instilling this attitude toward food. And I wanted to go back to something I wrote in uh, 2010, back in the height of the weight loss transformation genre. The biggest loser was huge back then. Everybody in their workplace was doing some kind of biggest loser challenge. Uh, It was kind of all the hype. And I was doing my master's thesis at this time and decided to focus on this narrative body transformation and all of the kind of uh, baggage of morality that's actually in this that we don't really think about when we're so steeped into it. But when you step back and actually look at it, it's, it's quite significant. Do uh, you remember that time back uh, when everyone was focusing on this genre? Oh yeah, of course. It was everywhere at that point. I feel like it's gone away or, or is it just me not paying attention or is it kind of gone away? It's probably just you not paying attention because there's a lot of pseudo cults nowadays like CrossFit or color runs that's kind of out of favor, but they're a bunch of kind of knockoffs of those, which are very much lifestyles. They're trying to like pull people in. Yeah, but it was never quite as intense as The Biggest Loser because that was like people falling off of treadmills, fainting, puking, puking on the gym floor regularly. <laughs> like this was pretty hardcore stuff. I feel like that was really. You're talking about the show, not people you saw in real life, right? No, no, this was the show. So he was really depicting fitness in these very extreme ways. And I feel like there was a high point around the 2010s era where this was just kind of all the rage. And when we look back at this now, it's, it's almost like, oh, how could we have held that to such high standard? High esteem. High esteem in a way. And also how the coaches on there who were terrible people to these overweight people. It's like in those settings, it's acceptable to be shitty to these people because they're overweight. Yeah. Like there's a lot of bias against overweight people. And one of the podcasts I listened to called uh, Maintenance Phase, which got me thinking more about like diets and uh, these approaches. There's this phenomenon of people talking about fat shaming and the negative things that go with being fat. And then whenever there's, that comes up, Suddenly out of the woodwork, the topic of, especially around thin people, thin shaming comes up. But like thin shaming, I don't know if you you have an opinion on this, but their their stance was that thin shaming isn't really a real thing a lot of the time because it only seems to come up as a problem in response to shutting up overweight people complaining about how they're treated poorly for being overweight. And while you're right, like being very thin has some people making some catty comments. Overall, thin people are generally regarded as being more competent like smarter, better leaders, a bunch of just intrinsic biases that come with these things. What do you think about that? As it just being a phenomenon in response? Yeah, the research would probably bear that out exactly. Have uh, different traits attributed to thinness, such as, yes, intelligence or success. I think these things have been studied. and I know they've been studied in regards to height, uh, where they'd have a shorter male and a taller male. And who's the CEO and, and, and that kind of idea. And I don't know if they've done it. Right. I don't, I can't recall any studies. They've definitely done that for weight. They've done it. I don't know that I can't think of the citations. I can't quote them either. I, I know I've seen them in my undergrad, but like there definitely are. But my point was more about how thin shaming as a topic only ever comes up in response to fat shaming. What, do you have any take on that? Yeah. Uh, we don't usually talk about it. 
Unless it's in that context. Yeah. I mean, fatching is often, I think the root is often discussed or moralizing and saying they're bad or weak people. Thin shaming, if it does exist in isolation of fat people, typically is out of jealousy. Like these people wish they were thinner. It's like, yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's like shaming a well-endowed woman. I remember in grade school, there was one girl who developed earlier than the others. And the ones that hadn't yet developed were saying that, well, boobs are mostly made of fat. So she's actually fatter than us. Mm, So it's different coming from a different place. One's coming from a moralizing kind of disgust realm, whereas the other one's coming from jealousy. Yeah, no, 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 you're bad. And the other one's, yeah, yeah I wish I was like you. <laughs> so I'm tearing you down. I really want to go into that moralizing and disgust realm because the a lot of morality socially throughout history, I know this is a huge sociological point, uh, has themes of disgust and uh, sanitation and cleanliness are often kind of going hand in hand with morality and morality was really huge with protecting societies from contagion early societies. And this is how morality functioned in binding a society together. It was, uh, you know, you see a lot of uh, Judaism has a lot of these cleanliness rituals. They're useful memes for the followers to continue to survive and to propagate. Yeah. It's a, like an operating system. Yes. It is a very useful thing and they had functions throughout history. And today we have cultural baggage that it can bind us together still, but the whole cleanliness elements are often uh, not really necessary in, in some ways. But in terms of the weight loss narratives, I followed this theme through the show I Used to Be Fat. It's a show that used to be on MTV. I know we've talked about it a, a bit. And the narrative that these kids would go through in their summer of dramatic weight loss before college it followed almost like a Christian ethic. And when I say Christian, I mean like the Protestant ethic, kind of Puritan values, which we've talked about before in terms of uh, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, Max Weber and that kind of sociology, mm-hmm. if anyone's familiar. And the narrative of starting the show, they would look into the mirror and have to do a sort of confession with like their, their shirt off and looking at themselves. Oh, it's just disgusting, frankly. Not the people, but this kind of chastising them. That could be easily <laughs> snipped and misinterpreted. <laughs> yeah, I had to clarify that. It's, yeah, it's, it's disgusting that they're, we're making somebody stand on camera looking at their body, which they're already treated probably badly for having and just existing in the world and saying, hey, how about you go and through an inventory, all the things you hate about yourself? Cause we're going to, yes, we're going to patch that up temporarily. Yeah. So the beginning scenes were always that they stand in front of a mirror. They stare at their body. They often cry. They're like, I hate myself. They grab their fat and you know, it's, it's the kind of stereotyped shaming type of situation. And it's just so shameless the way they do the shaming. <laughs> the shaming is so shameless in a sense. Because they're on the side of the moral majority. It's like how Christians can often be, or very religious people more particularly, can be some of the worst people because they believe that they're doing the right thing and that no matter what they do, they're on the right side because they believe the right things. But they're still being shitty people. But they're just using these things as blunt weapons, right? And in this case, it's just using the fact that people see overweight people as being less than that they're able to just completely rip them apart as though they haven't already done that all their lives as a result of everybody else constantly criticizing them already. Exactly. So this confessional scene really had those themes there where you had to confess, I'm bad. I hate myself. Okay. I need help. I I surrender really in a sense what they were doing. Mm. 
in the next scene, step program. Yeah. Yeah. The next scene was like the cleanse or like the penance for how bad you've been. And it was called the first workout. And in every episode, the first workout was always the, the hardest and the worst. And they almost always puked. Really? They were always near puking or puking. Uh, in a lot of these episodes seems just like torture yeah like literal torture it was almost as if like the puke was was symbolic where it was cleansing the body of toxins and or the the evil within it and it was almost like this kind of like self-flagellation it is inflicting damage on yourself to to be penitent penitent an exorcism in a sense it was like getting the devil out yeah really that's kind of how they they approached it really throughout the episode there would be the temptation or like the devil or is kind of tempting you back into the old ways. And it would usually be in the form of uh, cookies or sweets, generally, interestingly, presented by a maternal figure. So there'd be like a, a mother that would leave cookies on the table. And inversely, there would be a mentor figure that would emerge. And it would be generally a, a paternal type figure or the father who would kind of coach them and help them along the hero's journey and, and get them past the temptations. I think these are, I don't know if they're Jungian or Freudian, but these archetypes of the, I think it's Freudian, the overbearing father and the indulgent mother. I don't know if they were consciously applying these kind of archetypes, but they really play into how we generally see fat as feminine and bad. And then women kind of get the short end of the stick and childlike. Yeah. Yeah. And then in modern society, we've, seen masculinity as as good and uh, as strong and therefore more associated with muscle and rationality you see this in early modern times particularly where it's it's highlighted but it's odd though because like a lot of men end up carrying more weight in general but those men end up being much stronger like if you look at the strongman competitions those guys are not thin stick guys with no fat like it seems to play some role in their, their physiology that it's just there and it's just, again, like some people are just going to be a burly dude or burly woman. And that's just how they're built. Yeah, exactly. And then, so this show is reinforcing that that's not okay. And that in order to go to college and be accepted and be confident and successful in college, you need a slender body. And how do you get that? Well, you get it through going through this kind of regimen where you subjugate your body, you overcome your body in a sense. This is the idea of overcoming it through reason. Yeah. Crafting your body. Yeah. And so the mind in a sense is to overcome the body, privileging reason over the passions or the sensations. Yeah. But this is a, a false dichotomy though. Cause like the mind is part of the body and by abusing the body constantly, you're going to be abusing your mind as these people are. And that's what this whole thing is about, right? Like this is all one integrated machine. It's a complex system. And to constantly break them apart and say they're at odds, it's like the whole nature versus nurture argument. It's stupid. It's both at all times. It's a fundamental problem with the paradigm itself. And that mind body separation as an outdated paradigm from Rene Descartes, where he says, I think therefore I am. And really we had the mind body dualism thrust into the culture in that way. And, and Christianity picked it up in its own way of, uh, of using its metaphors for this. And, and so uh, what I argued here is that weight loss television was depicting or was a representation of the most recent version of this modern morality. I think David Hume kind of brought that back a bit and just came to mind just the quote, 
Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to be any other office than to serve and obey them. That is, apparently, according to the psychological research, among the most truthful statements of the relationship, because I think Socrates was basically saying that the passions are the things that are like the horses in front of a chariot and reason is the chariot um, behind it leading them. But it seems more like it's a slow elephant and the mind is a rider trying to slowly guide <laughs> the emotions. Or as I, that's a Jonathan Haidt thing. He's a psychologist. Jonathan Haidt, I was just thinking. Yeah. Or his other one was the reason is that the press secretary, like our, our emotions are the president that decides something. And then we are, our minds are the press secretary having to sell it. <laughs> okay, well, that decision has been made. Okay, like, uh, how, how do we make this make sense? <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, and, and when you saw the presidency of, of Trump, that was highlighted more than ever because... Oh, geez. He, he operated very much on this impulsive kind of emotional level. Chaotic. Yeah, and then the press secretary would have to come out and be like... Oh, man. How many did he have? Two or three? He had so many of them, so many. So the press secretary would come out and be like, this makes sense because of X, Y, and Z. So reason is like our press secretary. It makes sense of what we've already decided, but it makes sense of it after the fact. Do you notice that the press secretary was warped and had to start speaking like Trump in non-factual and obfuscating, just clouding the meaning of what was going on because they didn't have a good reason. They couldn't sell it sometimes. They just deflect. And so they started reflecting each other. So that was, that was a very interesting dynamic. But likewise, I'm tying that back into the, the body, I guess, because we're denying the body constantly and it's going to start reflecting back and forth. They're going to start acting out. Yes. And so this is where we get to the idea of the diet rebel and the food police. And I think it's helpful. The different personas. Yes. If we talk about this, uh, this will really encapsulate it metaphorically. And it's also going to be a practical takeaway for people. So in the, in the book, Intuitive Eating, they highlight six food voices and you can recognize these voices internally uh, within yourself and, and know which one is talking right now and what is it saying? Is it helpful? Is it unhelpful? And so the first one is the food police. That's the, the internalized moralizing voice of diet culture. It's telling you what's forbidden, what's allowed, what you can and can't do, should and shouldn't do. You're kind of operating based on these these laws. It's both internal and external, though. They are talking more specifically about yes. the internal one, but like there's constantly forces of people around you also put like shunning you and provoking the police in your mind to come forward and arrest you. Yes, the food police is yourself, but yes, this is the voice that also can be the parents, the coach that becomes internalized. It is particularly difficult because like I'm doing this by myself without a counselor. I probably, I considered reaching out, but I can't really afford one at the moment. We can talk about other options. <laughs> I can tell you about some free resources. <laughs> oh yeah. Let's, let's do that later. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what I've noticed is that like the hardest part for me, cause like it's fine when you're in isolation, but when you're doing something in public and people are looking at you or they explicitly say something to you, like you shouldn't be eating that or like, Oh, it's so much butter. And you're like, piss off. Like I'll do what I want. And then it makes you either feel shame or double down and be like, you know what? I'm having even more because like then this leads into the next one. If you want to go there. Well, the next one would be the nutrition informant. What? No, the diet rebel. I just like queued <laughs> that up entirely. Why did you switch? <laughs> because I'm going in order, whatever nutrition rebel. <laughs> Basically it should be the second one in my opinion, because it is directly related to the police. The police show up and they're like, Hey, don't do that. And you're like, piss off. I'm doing what I want. I'm going to do it even more. Yeah. So the diet rebel is the second one. Then let's say it's the second one, not the third one. There is no, okay. Just a point in the book. They do not number them as far as I remember. They don't, but they say it in this particular order. 
Whatever. <laughs> okay, we're skipping. We're skipping to the Diet Rebel. Let's address that first because I think yeah. that makes the most sense. Yeah. So the the Diet Rebel is the voice of uh, "Screw it, I deserve this," or "I've been deprived far too long. I don't care anymore. I, I'm just gonna have everything." Don't tell me what to do. Don't control me. Internal libertarian kind of clawing. It's like okay, anorexia. People think is about thinness. It's more about control yeah. a lot of the time. Yes. It's usually from overbearing parents, and this is similar. Where like their parents are forcing them to eat or forcing them to do this or that, and since they have no control in their life, they take control back by taking control of the one thing they can which is the stuff they put in their body. Likewise, in this way, people are saying, don't do that. Don't, you can't, you're not allowed. I forbid it. That just guarantees it's going to be more enticing. It's really the binging aspect of this. And this is the voice that comes in before a binge. And it just says, you know what? You tell me I can't do it. Food police. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it all out. And so that's the diet rebel. The next one. I think we already know what it is. Nutrition informant. The nutrition informant. The reason why I like to say after the food police is because it's the thing that informs the food police. It bolsters it. It feeds it information. It's like the scientist that feeds the the police all the facts. For me, then the proper order, if based on that connection, I, I see what you're saying. I would say start with nutrition informants, move to the food police because that's where all the information is going. And then the response to that is the rebel. That's a nice order. They should have presented it that way in the book. Now, you have a post on it. <laughs> I should rearrange my, my post to better fit your theoretical structure, which I like. So the nutrition informant is like, this many calories is healthy. You should have this much fat, this much carbs. So counting your macros is kind of the new version of counting your calories. Yeah. But the thing about counting calories, too, and these macros is that... Their variation between products, like, so each burger is not, I mean, some of them trying to like make it absolute, but a lot of these places, because they know that customers are doing this, they are incentivized to try to like tweak the numbers. Have you ever noticed if you, if you pay attention to serving sizes on stuff, Oh yeah, it'll be a single bottle and it'll say this much calories. And you're like, Oh, only like 10 calories for this thing. But no, that's only for like a fifth of the bottle or something. Yeah. One fifth. How do I measure that? <laughs> yeah. You have to really like, it's difficult. It's like this many milliliters, but it doesn't equally go into the, the size of the bottle. So they play these stupid games or they are incentivized to come up with smaller numbers. And the thing is when they've double checked these things after an independent body doing these things, they found it can vary by up to twice as much in terms of calories than what they actually have on labels. So you, it's not something you can feasibly do, even if you wanted to. Yeah. And so this nutrition informant, it is unhelpful when it's feeding information to the food police, but it can be an ally if you use it to understand the different types of nutrients and therefore listen to your body and how it responds to them. So you can have an understanding of what is a carb, what foods have carbs, what is fat what types of fats are there what foods have that and you can have a lot of nutrition information and use it for the purpose of intuitive eating so it can be an allied voice i'm with them in the book when they say to not even consider nutrition for the first while of trying this in the first while you wouldn't consider it no because yeah it's, it's going to make you start thinking about like oh this is it's going to start moralizing again because the, the nutrition formants oh i'm eating this oh that's bad it's too much fat so by doing that you're you're leading yourself back into the same cycle so if you're going to try this there are people actually certified in this for intuitive eating and they would be good to reach out to and definitely check out the book but what's are we done with the nutrition informant yes so the nutrition informant feeds the food police the up-to-date diet of the day food police says no don't do it and the diet rebel says yes i will i'm gonna do it anyway i'm gonna do it anyway and there's there's three other voices 
There's the anthropologist. These are the positive ones. Yes. The anthropologist, the nurturer, and the intuitive eater. The anthropologist is, is like the observer perspective. It's looking at what's actually going on right now. How are these food voices informing my decisions? Yeah. So can I share a personal experience, I guess, with that? Yeah. Because like the what I've noticed is the goal is to stop eating. Well, the Japanese style is to stop eating at 80%. So when you feel 80% full, you just stop. Or is it 60%? It's something, some percentage that's in that neighborhood where you just stop eating at that point. You can, and with this, you can... Use the anthropologist to say, okay, like, how did that make me feel? How full am I? Uh, should I eat more? You can, you can take a break and come back later knowing that you can, you can have more, but you're kind of, it's like a, a form of metacognition that we talked about in the episode meta. You're, you're thinking about your own thinking and, and analyzing your own body states, scanning and understanding and saying, oh, so that's how this machine works. We're kind of viewing a body like a piece of equipment. Uh, so when I eat this, I feel like this. Um, right now, I'm, I, I, th- I think I need a little bit more fuel and then... I think the problem with a lot of this was the way we're trained a lot of times to like finish your plate. And a lot of these things stem from parenting where the parents think that, okay, this kid's not eating enough or now they're eating too much. They're like, don't eat so much or eat more. And they force them. But on the whole, the kid's going to eat as much as they need over time or else like their body's just going to naturally do that. And what you're teaching them by saying, eat more, don't eat then they are teaching them to don't listen to these messages in your body. The longer you've dieted, this book says, the less you can actually understand what your body is saying to you because you've been taught so much and reinforced to not listen to it. To overcome it, like the the weight loss television idea. To enslave it, yes. Yeah, this uh, anthropologist, a helpful observer voice. The next one would be the nurture, which is really the voice of self-compassion. It tends to the more of the emotional realm here and... It speaks to you like someone you care about. It's a way to work with the internalized shame that was put into you uh, through diet culture. Uh, So this is a voice that doesn't necessarily come natural if you've been living with uh, a lot of shame around these things. It's something that you develop. And there's a book called Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff, which we've referenced before. Uh, that's really great around developing this nurturer voice or the voice of self-kindness. It says progress, not perfection. Yes. Whereas the shame voice says perfection or you're worthless. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny is that I realized that I stopped eating fruit because I remember thinking basically that fruit is just a bunch of sugar. Fruit is nature's candy. So I'm just not going to eat any of it ever. And so I don't eat fruit either. I just recently started doing it because like for breakfast, I'll just have like a peach or something. I really like peaches actually every, I've discovered, but I'm interested, I'm curious how this kind of fits in with what we were talking about last podcast with Tim Ferriss's just structured for basic maintenance stuff that you're just getting through the day. You don't want to think about these things. So you just have like a set breakfast. Uh, apparently the people with the lowest BMIs and the, the healthier athletes, uh, they just have, they don't think about any of these things. It's just automated. I wake up, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to do this. And you just kind of go through the day. So I don't know. What, how do you think this squares away with that? Having a regimented, just these are the things you eat. And uh, just the, I guess, using intuitive eating to just choose how much of each and when. But the question of what is taken care of. You think that's that squares away fine? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, maybe not in the beginning because it could feel very rigid uh, if you're starting the intuitive eating process. Yeah. Like you feel like you're not truly free. You're just going on another diet. Yeah. Yeah. You'd feel like another diet too much. It would trigger all that baggage. But if you had a healthy relationship with food or healed your relationship with food, yeah, why not? You figured out what you liked already and therefore 
why not create a, a system around it so you're not having to think about it as much? Yeah. And, and so the last voice is a combination of this, the nurturer, and the anthropologist, the observer. It's also uh, integrating the allied or healthy version of the nutrition informant. And there's even an allied version of the diet rebel. And what that voice says is it rebels against attempts of people to cross your food boundaries. So you're not rebelling against the food police anymore by binging. You're rebelling by standing up for your boundaries and, and saying no and really not having shame around this. These messages are coming in. Yeah. So what was that last one called again? Uh, the allied version of the, the diet rebel. And that's all part of the intuitive eater. That's kind of a accumulation of all of the voices where you're listening to the anthropologist of what's going on right now. You're speaking to yourself compassionately. If there's a slip or anything, you're not beating yourself up. And you're also kind of hearing the helpful facts about nutrition and applying it to what your body responds to well, and uh, also maintaining personal boundaries when people try to cross them. So I think we're running out of time. So I'm just going to say, why should somebody consider intuitive eating instead of just dieting? Diets have been shown. Some of them seem to work and people are always excited about them. What's the point of doing it this way? It seems like it's just another diet, people would say. It would seem that way, but it's actually, it's quite uh, a different thing. And it leads to actual better health outcomes, not just mental health outcomes, but physical ones as well. And so this is not just a throw out dieting, anti-diet, I'm just going to eat fast food all day type of idea, because that wouldn't feel very good if you're actually listening to your body. I have a metaphor. Throw it in. So traditional diets would be like following a cult leader and listening to everything they say. Whereas this particular form, if you want to call it a diet, is about teaching the person critical thinking. So one is just exporting all their thinking to somebody else and doing it without question as much as possible. And this one is about teaching somebody to think and learn how to do it themselves in a way that is optimal for their own situation. Love it. And so maybe we can end it there. The take-home message here really is trust your gut. (laughs) (laughs) In more ways than one. In more ways than one. All right. Thanks for for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And uh, yeah, thanks for sticking around. All right. Take care. You want to be ready for a tap? Ready for a tap? One, two, three. Oh, I did it way after.